to the fifth episode in our series of audio briefings exploring key aspects of company law. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Suzanne Carney of Council in the Corporate and M&A Department in Arthur Cox. Hi, Ashling Carey, Professional Support Lawyer in the Corporate and M&A Department in Arthur Cox. And I'm Tom Courtney, Partner in Arthur Cox. Today is part of our Company Law Back to Basics series. We are focusing on the topic of members and directors meetings in private companies. We distinguish between private and public companies in this regard, as there are additional rules, practices and procedures which apply to public companies, particularly listed PLCs, which would not be possible to cover today in the time we have allocated. Once again, it's a great opportunity for our listeners to get Tom's insight on this topic, given that many practitioners regularly consult Tom's book for the law in relation to meetings. We're all familiar with the concept that companies, while separate and distinct from their members, can only act through their members and the individuals whom the members have selected to conduct the day-to-day management of the company, that is, the directors. That's right, Suzanne, and it is because of this very fact that it is so important that the decisions of members and directors, whether made during meetings or by way of written resolution, are regulated and properly documented. This helps ensure that good corporate governance procedures are followed and that there is some level of accountability for those making the decisions. Although I'm sure our listeners are familiar with the distinction, Ashley, can you briefly explain the difference between the two types of shareholder meetings or general meetings as they are known? A company's annual general meeting, or AGM, is the most important company meeting and is held in each calendar year. Its main purpose is to facilitate a company's members to consider the company's financial statements. An extraordinary general meeting, or EGM, is the name given to all general meetings of a company other than AGMs. EGMs are usually held when the company proposes to do something which requires the approval of shareholders under the Act, for example, to pass a special resolution to amend its constitution. Before we get into the weeds of the rules and formalities concerning members and directors meetings, Tom, could you give us some insight into how the law relating to members and directors proceedings changed with the introduction of the Companies Act 2014, if at all? Sure, Suzanne. At the outset, it should be noticed that while the 2014 Act introduced some important changes to the law relating to general meetings and resolutions, the biggest difference is that many of the provisions which would typically have been included in companies' articles of association are now set out in the Act. Some of these provisions are mandatory, but all those formally contained in Table A are optional and can be modified or indeed entirely disapplied in the company's constitution. One change introduced by the Act was the extension of the ability to dispense with the requirement to hold an AGM to single-member DACs, PLCs, companies limited by guarantee, and unlimited companies. This previously only applied to single-member private limited companies, and while LTDs continue to benefit from this right, multi-member LTDs can now also dispense with this requirement. Instead of holding an AGM, a written resolution setting out certain acknowledgements, resolutions, and confirmations as specified in Section 1753 of the Act can be passed in each year in which the company wishes to avail of the exemption. Another significant change introduced by the Act was the introduction of the concept of a majority written shareholder resolution. Previously, companies could only pass written resolutions where all of the members entitled to attend and vote at a general meeting signed them. With a majority written resolution, provided the requisite majority for an ordinary resolution 
or for a special resolution signs it, it will be deemed to have been passed by the members. It should be noted that only LTDs and DACs can pass this type of resolution, although the constitution of a DAC may exclude the use of majority resolutions, whereas an LTD cannot. In practice, we have found that majority written resolutions are used very infrequently and only really where the signature of all shareholders cannot be obtained or where the resolution does not need to be passed straight away. That's correct. The reason being that the Act specifies in the case of an ordinary resolution that the resolution will be deemed to have been passed at a meeting held seven days after the date on which the last member signed it and in respect of a special resolution, at a meeting held 21 days after the date of the last member to sign. This will apply unless all members waive the requirement. Which would beg the question, if such a waiver can be obtained, why not just use a unanimous written resolution? Exactly, and given that most companies want a resolution to take effect immediately, this procedure is used less frequently than the unanimous written resolution procedure. While written shareholder resolutions are an important tool for private companies, Tom, why would companies choose to hold general meetings? Well, Suzanne, for the vast majority of companies, especially wholly owned subsidiaries, the written resolution procedure will be the order of the day because all references in the Act to do something that must be done by the company in general meeting shall be read as including written resolutions of the shareholders. The primary circumstances in which companies hold general meetings is when they have a number of shareholders who would expect an opportunity to question the company's directors and where the directors ask the shareholders to pass resolutions in respect of which the shareholders are likely to have questions that they would like answered before deciding how they will vote. Additionally, there are two situations where an LTD cannot use the written resolution procedure, namely resolutions to remove or not continue in office the company's statutory auditors and resolutions to remove directors, both of which must be passed at a meeting of the shareholders. It is worth mentioning at this point that single member companies are not required to hold general meetings in order to make decisions. Instead, resolutions can be passed by way of written decision, including a decision to remove a director. Although should a single member company wish to convene a general meeting or pass a unanimous written resolution, it is free to do so. A final point to mention with regard to shareholder resolutions is that most resolutions must be filed with the CRO within 15 days of their passing. This applies to all special resolutions, but not all ordinary resolutions, only certain of which are required to be filed. Failure to file is an offence, but with certain exceptions will generally not invalidate the resolution. Where a company proposes to hold a general meeting, there are significantly more formalities that must be followed in terms of things such as notice, the proceedings at the meeting and voting, as compared to directors' meetings, which are relatively less formal affairs. In terms of the period of notice that must be given for general meetings, the Companies Act specifies that for all AGMs and for EGMs at which a special resolution is proposed, 21 days' notice must be given. For all other EGMs, seven days' notice must be given unless the constitution of the company requires more. The day on which the notice is served and the day of the meeting are not counted in the notice period. That is, clear notice must be given. Companies are also free to specify longer periods of notice in their constitution. It is important to note that shorter notice may be given in a number of circumstances, including where all of the members entitled to attend and vote at the meeting and the company's statutory auditors, if any, agree. 
and in the case of a general meeting to pass a special resolution where a majority in number of the members having the right to attend and vote at the meeting being a majority holding not less than 90% of the nominal value of the shares giving that right or holding 90% of the total voting rights agree to this. There is no limitation in the Act as to how short the notice can be. It's also worth mentioning that in the event that notice of the meeting is accidentally not given to or not received by any person entitled to receive notice, this will not invalidate the meeting. This is an optional provision in the Act which applies save to the extent of the company's constitution provides otherwise. Those entitled to receive the notice of a general meeting include every member, the directors and secretary, and the company's auditors, unless, of course, the company has an audit exemption. The Companies Act also specifies what must go into the notice and includes the place, date and time of the meeting, the general nature of business to be transacted at the meeting, the text of any proposed special resolution and the procedure for appointing a proxy. When it comes to the day of the meeting, one thing that is often a little confusing until you have been to a general meeting and seen it operate in practice is how voting is conducted. Tom, can you explain how voting typically takes place at a general meeting? Well, while a company can specify in its constitution how voting is to be conducted and the voting rights attached to shares, voting typically takes place by way of a show of hands, with each member getting one vote. The concept of one member, one vote can, however, lead to issues in certain circumstances. So, for example, where a member holds shares in their own right and also on trust for someone else, or where a proxy holds shares for multiple shareholders and wants to vote them different ways, or where members defeated on a show of hands feel they have a greater shareholding than those who succeeded on the show of hands, or indeed, where the chairperson cannot determine the result of the vote on a show of hands. This can lead to the members or the chairperson demanding that a poll be conducted. The right to demand a poll and the persons entitled to demand a poll are set out in section 189 of the Act. When voting is done by poll, the general rule is one vote for each share held, thereby giving those with the greatest financial interest in the company the power to determine the outcome of a vote. It's a good idea to keep a written record of votes cast by a way of poll in case the result is challenged down the line. For example, a letter from the chairperson stating that he or she has cast X number of votes for and Y number of votes against a particular resolution as directed by the shareholder entitled to those votes. This leads us on to the significance of keeping minutes of members and board meetings. Ashton, can you explain why this is important? Companies cannot think or act for themselves and can only do so by their members or directors, and it is vital that the company's decision-making is documented. For one thing, it is an offence to fail to enter minutes of the proceedings at the meeting and the terms of the resolutions passed at the meeting in the company's books. More importantly, though, the Act provides that the minutes, once signed by the chairperson, constitute evidence of the proceedings, and there is a presumption that once this is done, the meeting was duly held and convened, all proceedings at the meeting were duly had, and all appointments of directors or liquidators are deemed to be valid. As such, it is important that minutes accurately reflect what transpired at the meeting. One thing that we are sometimes asked is whether any amendment can be made to either the minutes of a board or shareholder meeting once the chairperson has signed them. Tom, from what Ashling has said, it doesn't seem like this is possible. 
Absolutely, Suzanne. No, minutes once approved and signed cannot be amended under any circumstances, including to fix even typographical errors. The minute is a record of what happened, what was said at a meeting, not what people would wish they had said. There is no exception to this, even if what was said transpires to have been incorrect. The fact is that it was said, and that is what needs to be set out in the minutes. In the case of board minutes, if an inaccuracy is discovered, that should be raised at the next board meeting and the inaccuracy noted in the minutes of that subsequent board meeting. That is, the original minutes will remain on the books unamended. I think it's also important to note when minutes actually become minutes. After a meeting, draft minutes are generally circulated. These are not, however, the minutes and they can be amended. Minutes become minutes when they are approved by the board of directors at a meeting. The validity of minutes does not turn on them being signed by the chairperson. Minutes become minutes when they're approved by the directors. The significance of the chairperson signing minutes is not to create them or confer validity on them, but merely to evidence that the document in question signed by the chairperson accurately constitutes the minutes. Signing the minutes, therefore, creates an evidential presumption that the document in question is the minutes that were approved by the directors. While minutes will usually be approved at the meeting subsequent to the meeting to which the minutes relate, where transactions are being conducted and minutes are required to be produced on closing, draft minutes may issue before the meeting, and provided nothing further is raised, those minutes, both approved by the directors present and also signed by the chairperson at the end of the meeting. We have already mentioned that far fewer rules apply to proceedings of directors. Indeed, the vast majority of the provisions in the Act that govern directors' meetings are optional and apply save to the extent that the company's constitution provides otherwise. That is true, Ashley. The Act does not specify how often board meetings should be held and the directors are given the authority in the optional provisions and usually in the constitution to regulate their meetings as they think fit. The Act also does not specify how much notice must be given of a board meeting, just that it be reasonable. Depending upon the nature of the business to be conducted, reasonable can mean seven days, seven hours, or albeit in an extreme situation, even seven minutes. It is important that some level of formality must be observed, however, and it is still important that board meetings are identifiably board meetings and that the directors are aware that what they are attending is in fact a board meeting and not, for example, a management meeting. A provision of the Companies Act that has proven very useful during the COVID-19 pandemic is Section 161, subsection 6, which permits directors to hold board meetings by way of telephone, video or other electronic communication. Prior to the introduction of the 2014 Companies Act, a company was required to include this part in its articles if it wished to hold telephonic board meetings. A question that we are sometimes asked is what the location of a telephonic board meeting is for the purpose of noting it in the board minutes. The Companies Act specifies that the meeting will be deemed to take place either where the largest group of those participating in the conference is assembled, if there is no such group where the chairperson of the meeting is, or if neither of those applies in such location as the meeting itself decides. Yes, and the location of the meeting is often an important point for companies with specific requirements as a result of their tax residency. 
Such companies usually have detailed provisions in their constitutions, setting out where meetings can take place and where directors can be located if dialing into such meetings. Another example of the relative informality of board meetings is how decisions are made. The Companies Act provides that decisions are made by a majority of votes, with each director present having one vote, and where there is a tie, the chairperson will have a second or casting vote. Directors, like shareholders, are also permitted to pass written resolutions. However, such resolutions must be signed by all of the directors entitled to receive notice of the meeting, with the exception of conflicted directors. This is often inconvenient to arrange in practice, and so, in the event that the board is not available to physically meet in the same place, the easier option is usually to hold a telephonic board meeting rather than pass a written board resolution. As we mentioned in our last episode, there is one instance under the Act where a board meeting, as opposed to a written board resolution, is required. This is in relation to the approval of the Director's Declaration as part of the Summary Approval Procedure, which the Act requires be made at a meeting of the Board of Directors of the company or companies carrying out the restricted activity. One final thing to mention before we conclude this section of the podcast is that the company's miscellaneous provisions COVID Act of 2020 has made some temporary amendments to the provisions in the 2014 Act around the conduct of general meetings, including permitting entirely virtual meetings to take place, allowing directors to change or cancel a general meeting, requiring certain additional information to be contained in the notice of the meeting if being held virtually, and also changes relating to the procedure for giving notice of rescheduled meetings. Many companies have welcomed the flexibility of electronic meetings, And I can see that many would like to continue to hold electronic general meetings into the future after the pandemic. Those companies need to be mindful that the COVID Act's provisions lapse on the 31st of December 2021. And so if they wish to continue to be able to hold electronic meetings with the same degree of flexibility and certainty, they should consider whether their constitution can be changed to permit this. Thank you, Tom. We hope our listeners find this overview of members and directors meetings helpful. Before we wrap up today's episode, we are going to briefly look at some of the recent corporate law developments from the last few weeks. The Central Bank published the results of its market abuse thematic review, which involved a review of compliance with the market abuse regulation, or MAR as it is known, by issuers listed on Euronext Dublin and their advisors and regulated trading firms. The central bank issued letters to relevant market participants in which it set out its key findings and expectations in relation to MAR compliance standards going forward. The central bank expects issuers to assess their MAR operations and put in place a remediation plan, such plan to be discussed and approved by the boards of issuers by the end of 2021. Suzanne, are there any other developments of note? The Delegated Act setting out the content and methodology for non-financial disclosures under Article 8 of the EU taxonomy regulation that we mentioned in our previous episode was adopted by the European Commission. The Delegated Act will now be subject to a four-month scrutiny period and should come into force for reporting companies with effect from the 1st of January 2022. Finally, the Central Register of Beneficial Ownership of Trusts as operated by the Revenue Commissioners, is now live. By way of reminder, express trusts established on or before the 23rd of April of this year should be registered by the 23rd of October of this year. Any express trusts created after the 23rd of April should be filed within six months of their creation. Thanks, Suzanne. 
That concludes this episode in our series of audio briefings. If you have any questions on anything we discussed today, or if there's any particular issue you would like to hear more about, please feel free to contact Tom, Suzanne or me, or your usual Arthur Cox contact. We will be back with a new episode next month. In the meantime, thank you for listening and goodbye.